invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be looking at this passage in just a moment. It's good to see everyone out this evening. Uh, it's just another encouraging moment that we get to be together and worship God together as a family through the blood of His Son. Uh, the, especially that last song I don't think I've ever sung before, but I, I, going through the lyrics, I, I really like that notion. The home of the soul being with God and, and really just thinking forward. I think that's something that a lot of times people just have a hard time doing, especially in our culture, but even Christians sometimes. And I do think that that's going to kind of play into some of the things that I want to discuss this evening as we look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 2. But just think about this passage for just a moment with me. Let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 4, as Peter is speaking to... Christians, and, and really all throughout First Peter, he's talking to Christians about suffering. But in this part of chapter 2, in verse 4, he says, And coming to him, Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Just Again, think about some of the language that Peter uses here for just a moment. He, he really talks about some things that especially the Jews would know maybe a little bit better than some of the Gentiles, but he, he really uses language that's talking about being built up and really being built up for a specific purpose, that we are being built up for a specific purpose. He says that we are to be especially a spiritual house. There's a few other things that we'll look at in just a moment, but this is really the main thing that I want to think about. What does it mean when he says that we are as a spiritual house? Honestly, this sounds pretty important because he says this is what we're saved to be. It's what we're saved to look like. It's what we're saved to become. That seems pretty important to me, that we are to be as a spiritual house, not just for any reason, not just for any purpose, but for God. He goes on and he talks about being living stones. What, what, what does that mean? Well, I want to try and understand this a little bit, a little bit better, this whole passage, uh, as we continue through this study. But I'll just say he is using language, again, that the Jews in the first century would have definitely understood. There may have been some confusion with some of the Gentiles, but regardless, he's using language that had much weight behind it. When he talks about a spiritual house, when he talks about a royal priesthood, especially when you get to verse 9, which we'll look at later in the study. So what does this have to do with Christians today? Well, I think we need to answer that question. So what we need to start with is basically get a little bit of the historical background just for a brief moment, looking at what the Jews would have taken from this kind of language, what kind of really context they would have brought with them being Jews and knowing the scriptures of old and really see what Peter is trying to get not just Jews but Christians to apply. So what he begins talking about is really hearkening back to 
the temple. And, and especially if you've read the Bible before, you know at least a little bit about the temple. You know that this was essentially uh, the house of God in the midst of Israel. This wasn't just some interesting physical structure. It was impressive, to say the least, and we're going to look at that even more in just a moment. But it was supposed to communicate something. It was supposed to communicate something to Israel. It was supposed to communicate something to Gentiles. It was supposed to communicate something to everyone. God was trying to communicate something with this temple. And, and, and I would just say from the outset, when you looked at it, it was glorious. It was something to behold. In fact, when you see the Queen of Sheba come in, what does she say to Solomon? Not even half has been told to me after seeing his wisdom, after seeing everything that he had done. And, and so it was something that was impressive and I think really was supposed to strike people on a physical level. There is definitely spiritual applications here, but I do want to just start with that in mind, that this was supposed to strike people on the very, uh, just, just by sight. Now, it wasn't just for any reason. First of all, I think it was supposed to show something about God that he was, in fact, holy. God's people were supposed to know this from the very beginning. In fact, you go back to Leviticus, and he makes that very clear with, with Nadab and Abihu. When they try to approach him in a very sinful and a very irreverent way, what do they do? Or what does God do? He responds with a very severe punishment. And what does he say? I'm, I'm going to be treated as holy. And people aren't just going to waltz in, and they're not just going to do whatever they want to in my presence or, or do whatever they want to in worship to me. They're going to have to be reverent, and they're going to have to be respectful. Because I am the Almighty. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 6, 1 Kings chapter 6, this, we're, we're not going to look at this whole chapter by any means, but this kind of gets into some of the construction of the temple, of Solomon's temple at least. And in verse 7, I think this is pretty interesting. Because from the very beginning, even the work taken to create this was treated very uh, reverently. In 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, The house while it was being built was built of stone, prepared at the quarry. And he, there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. Now, we can just read a verse like that and say, well, that's just interesting and move on. But again, I think there was a purpose there. Why was it that there was not going to be any work done or any sound heard at this house? Well, because it wasn't just anybody's house. It wasn't Solomon's house. This is God's. It has a very special purpose. And I know we've talked about this before, but what, what do we mean when we use the word holy? It's something that's set apart, and it's set apart for a special purpose. I think I've maybe even gone through this illustration before, but there are lots of things in our lives that are set apart. My keys are often set apart from everything else in the house, but it's not very special to me. Now, if I lost it, I would pr get pretty mad for that day, but, but it doesn't have any significance in my heart. I'm just going to have to go out of my way to make, get a spare key so that I can drive the car. When we talk about holy, this is something or someone that is set apart for a very special reason. Something that's sanctified, consecrated. And God, in his house, that would absolutely be holy. And so from the very outset, even just from the beginning of the, uh, of the construction, I think you see this even in the minute details. That God is continuing that notion, I will be treated as holy. But not only that, it was precious. Skipping down to verse 19, still in 1 Kings chapter 6. Look at what it was built out of. It says, Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. 
The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. So Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar, which was the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. Now you could go beyond just the gold and see all of the precious materials that were used to build this house. But just in those few verses, does anyone read through that and think, oh, that's pocket change. <laughs> no, no, that's quite a bit of money. Everything was overlaid with gold. In fact, when the priests would walk in, they would be walking on pure gold. Even the floors was gold. And, and even from that standpoint, what I like about that is, I think even that was supposed to communicate something. That you're not just walking on common ground. What are you doing as a priest when you go before God? And when you offer sacrifices and worship to Him, you are walking on holy ground. And it's not just because it's gold, but it's reflecting something that is very important. And very valuable and precious. Now, when you think about how God is instructing everything needs to be built and everything needs to be done, do you think that he is overlaying everything with gold just because he's fickle? Do you think that the reason he's instructing them to build everything like this is, is because really gold means so much to him? Because he needs that kind of monetary value in, in, in himself. I don't think he needs anything. Rather, again, I think he's trying to communicate something. That God's house is, in fact, glorious. That it's beautiful. And not just in and of itself, but it is supposed to be a reflection of his glory. What is contained inside. Not only that, it was holy, it was precious, but it was also personal. It was intimate. This was where he dwelt among his people. This is a very physical representation of God dwelling in the midst of Israel. And it was supposed to be, I think, in many cases, a physical reminder of how they were supposed to act, how they were supposed to be. And, and, and again, just thinking from, from the physical plane, it, it was supposed to strike awe into people's hearts. It was supposed to be something to behold. And I think because God is trying to show once more what is inside what is contained inside is even better because what is the, the very presence of God and his glory. And, and if you wanted to get near the presence of God, what did you have to do? You had to get near to the temple. And you had to bring your offering to the temple so that the priests would offer it before God. In Daniel, when you see the people uh, going into captivity, into Babylonian captivity, and the temple's been destroyed, what do they continue to do? But they will even pray towards the direction of Jerusalem because they're, they're praying in the same direction as the temple. Still with that reminder that that was supposed to be a symbol that God was among us. And why were they in captivity? Because they had gotten so corrupt that he couldn't be among them anymore. And that was promised long ago that he was not going to continue to bless them if they just disobeyed. And so this was supposed to communicate that God was in their midst. And when the calamity struck, what did that show? That he wasn't anymore. And so this was God making clear that this was that that he was in fact glorious, that he was in fact holy, that he was that he wanted to be near his people. Back in 1 Kings chapter 6, or chapter 8 rather, skipping to the very end of the construction, look 
at this beautiful scene. In verse 10, after it's all said and done, in verse 10 it says, It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so in one sense, what I think you have here is God showing after Solomon has dedicated the temple to him and after all the construction is being done, God is making clear that this is my house. And I want you to understand that it should be revered just like I should be. Now, with how spectacular this physical temple was, uh, just on a visual level, it clearly wasn't supposed to end there, as we've indicated all throughout. Let me ask you, how many times does, when, when someone comes up to you and begins talking to you about building their own house, or just buying one and doing work on it, how often do you just get so enthralled by that, wow, what kind of baseboards did you get? Oh, oh, really? That, you know, I don't really like that popcorn look on the ceiling, but, but you know, that's really interesting that you put it up there. <laughs> you know, a lot of times people start talking to us about that. We're like, that's cool. That's, that's neat. But we don't want to spend hours talking about this. But I'll tell you what, to that person who put all the time and effort, the money, their own physical energy into this, that means a lot to them because that's their house. Now, I know that it's hard to listen to people when they talk about their own houses, especially when we don't have much really invested in that. But this isn't just anybody's house. This is God's house. And I would just say from the very outset that I think sometimes when we read through the, these kinds of passages, we almost think, uh, this, who cares? I don't want to immediately jump there. I want to realize that God always was trying to communicate something to his people, not just back then, but even today, as you see in 1 Peter chapter 2, using the same kind of language. Because if that was God's house, what is that really supposed to tell us about God's house today? That spiritual household that we started with in 1 Peter chapter 2. Ultimately, it was pointing to how glorious God's church was going to be. Every beautiful thing that you read about the temple, from the reverence that they were supposed to have while they were building it, to the minute details that even the sockets, even the chains were overlaid with gold. The, the tiniest of things. Even that was special. Now we look at those and we say, well, again, what does that matter? I think, I think when we look over that so quickly, we forget the value that it has in our lives today. What is it supposed to show? What is it supposed to mean to me? In fact, I think it just encourages us all the more when we see those little details. Go over to Ephesians chapter 2. We already looked in 1 Peter chapter 2, but Ephesians chapter 2 I think makes it even clearer. Paul, this time in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 19. In verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It, again, even very similar uh, quotations from 1 Peter chapter 2. And what are both individuals trying to say, Paul and Peter? But that if there was something glorious about that temple, and it was, that's just the shadow. And what you get when you get into the church is that it's amplified. It's only stronger. The beauty, the 
reverence, the energy that we are supposed to put into that, how we are supposed to approach this kind of relationship, all of that is only amplified in this covenant. And so as Peter uses language hearkening back to that glorious temple, he's now translating that to a glorious church. And this is what I want to end with, coming back to 1 Peter chapter 2. What are some of these things that he says that we are, as we are supposed to be, as a spiritual household, like the temple of God? Because we all, if we become Christians, are grafted into that. And what does it say? Through Christ, on that foundation, we're being built up into that. Well, first of all, he uses language like you are supposed to be as living stones. You see several passages throughout the New Testament. We're not going to look at all of them tonight, but there are just several passages that talk about what it means and what it's supposed to look like if we are the temple of God. But particularly in this instance, I think this is one of the most encouraging points that, that we can make and that we can see in this. And, and really, this is one of the reasons I want to go through this study is because I think if you need encouragement, here's a topic to look at. Here is a subject that you can study and find much meaning that God wanted for you and your life. Now, why do I say that? Because all of the things that you saw with the gold overlaid in everything in his house, all of the precious materials that, were ma that made it glorious, it's no longer that, that material things. Now it is you, Christian, who make that house of God, or, or, or really what make up this glorious house of God, rather. You are not the people who couldn't be in the temple when the glory of God filled it. You are the living stones that house it. You aren't staring at the reflection of God's glory and just wishing that you could be closer. You get to be the reflection. You are not any longer just standing outside wishing to get closer and closer to His presence, to God's dwelling. He's made you a part of His dwelling place. Just go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and reread re that. Now, I say all that, it's not, it's not just because of you know, Luke's own value, because I'm so great, but rather it's because of what Christ has done. Rather, it's because of what Christ has grafted me into. Just like with the temple, it wasn't the gold that made the temple so precious. In this case, it is those who have been recreated in Christ's image. That's what makes it precious. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, Again, we're not going to read that whole passage, but, but it talks about being the temple of God. And therefore, if you are, you can't be associating with the sin of this world, with the defilement of flesh and spirit, as he would go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But in verse 20, he says, because you have been bought with a price. And what was that price? The blood of Christ. And, and even when you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, again, it's not just because... We as living stones are, are so precious. It's, it's all based on Christ, the living stone, the cornerstone that everything else is built on top of. So with all of that being said, if that is so beautiful, if that is so glorious, and the church more so, or is supposed to be, am I serving my purpose then? Am I reflecting his glory as the temple was supposed to reflect his glory. Now, I, I know it's so easy to say, well, of course I am. I'm living my life as a Christian every single day, and, and people know that I'm a Christian. They know that I've been baptized. But are you being that beacon, that city set on a hill that everybody can see? You know, if you're driving in the nighttime, uh, if you've ever driven, especially when we were driving from Mississippi to Indiana, there were several moments where, 
where there was just no lights other than your headlights and you had to trust as far as your brights could go because sometimes there was going to be some animals or some kind of livestock that wanted to get in your way. And in the dead of night, you're really relying on that light. And every now and then, you'd get to a point on the road where you'd see maybe just some city lights. And there's a bit of relief because at least you know for a moment you're going to be able to see all the way around you. And you know you're going to be driving in, in complete security, in safety. When it is a world filled with darkness, that light set on a hill becomes a lot more important. It becomes a lot more than just uh, barely visible. It's incredibly visible. Because when you're surrounded by deeds of darkness, sons of disobedience that only want to do the deeds of darkness, just a little light does a lot. Now, if just a little light does so much, shouldn't each of us be able to do way more than just, well, at least I'm not cursing like everybody else. Granted, we need to do that. But are we going a step further? Are we going into the conversation and asking people, you ever studied the Bible? It's a good thing when we don't respond with the same kind of emotions and inflammatory language as everyone else when, when chaos ensues. But it shouldn't just be that people see our calm demeanor. It should be that people see our activity spiritually in those moments. Are, are people seeing us pray to God before we eat the meal? Are people seeing us pray to God before we go out onto the road? Are people seeing us teach, hearing us speak the words of God, hearing us singing hymns? You don't have to just sing those hymns in the worship service. You can sing hymns just like Paul and Silas while they are in prison. Some of us look at that as like work, <laughs> but you can be that beacon. Are we being that beacon? Or are we, are we being barely visible? Well, not only are we supposed to be a reflection of God's glory, but he also goes on to say in 1 Peter that we are to be that holy or royal priesthood. Going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to continue in verse 9. We only read verses 4 through 8, but in verse 9 it says, in 1 Peter chapter 2, For they stumble... Uh, at the end of verse 8, because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so once more, you just continue to see that notion of being the light in a world of darkness. When you think about how much energy the priests had to put into their jobs, when they worshipped, when they would offer the sacrifices, not even just an offering, but when you were going to approach God, you had to make sure that you were ceremonially clean. You were not going to approach Him if you had been around a, 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 a dead body, if you had been around something that was just decaying. You had to make sure that you washed yourself. You had to make sure that you were completely clean before you even approached the presence of God. I don't think that when you get to the New Covenant, we should immediately think, well, I'm just glad that we don't have to do all that because that would have been hard work. I don't think we fully grasp the point of what they were doing. Isn't it supposed to be the same today that 
as a royal priesthood, a nation, a kingdom of priests, we are supposed to be coming to God with even a more severe or serious notion of reverence and purity. I don't want to live a life of ungodliness. I don't want to be associated. I don't want to be touched with corruption of the world and then come to God on Sunday thinking, well, everything's going to be okay. It's easy to do that, though. Especially when you don't have the, the physical things that you can see very quickly. But, but with the priests... It would have been a lot harder to overlook those things. And I don't think that when they looked at how much preparation that they had to, to make, that you would have ever heard a priest, at least in, in the good moments of Israel's history, I don't think you ever would have heard a priest say, well, well, I've just got too much going on this week. So I can't really think about those things. Could a priest have said that? Could Aaron have said that? No, he had a very very special job. He had a very important job as a priest for God. We are a kingdom of priests. It's not just one sect of people. We are all supposed to be preparing ourselves to be able to worship God, to be able to come before Him. Am I living with strictures that keep me pure in God's sight to come before Him? Or am I coming before Him with no thought, with no consideration whatsoever, offering sacrifice with impurity from corruption of the world. We really need to think about that, I think, before we come to worship God and as we just live the daily life of a Christian because I think it's too easy to overlook those things. Well, finally, he talks about being sacrifices. Now, there's two things that I think we need to pick up when he talks about this offering of spiritual and acceptable sacrifices. First of all, he talks about the spiritual. Just because it's not... Just because we don't have so much visual and physical uh, things to, that, that, that you could so easily see the blood right in front of you and that sensory overload of smelling it and seeing it with the offerings and, and the, the burning incense. And just because you can't see the tunic that they had to put on that was supposed to be, again, representative of something and communicate something. Just because it's not as physical anymore does not mean that it loses impact. In fact, because it's spiritual, God wants the impact to only increase. Just because something is spiritual does not mean that it is less important than the physical. That's just man's thinking. But over in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, a very familiar passage to everyone, but Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, beginning in verse 1 rather, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, a very familiar passage. But just because we are under the new covenant and all of those offerings are done away with because they've been fulfilled in Christ, but also, what does it say in Romans chapter 12? You have to be the sacrifice, a living sacrifice. And remember all the qualifications of those sacrifices? Unblemished, they had to be pure in a very similar way. Are, am I striving to be that living sacrifice that is uh, acceptable before God, that is that spiritual life of, of servitude and sacrifice to Him? Well. Not only that, but I think the acceptable nature of that goes hand in hand with, with the spiritual offering. People never were just allowed to do as they pleased when it came to worship. From the very beginning of Genesis, no one was ever just allowed to do as they pleased and as they thought was best. It always came down to what did God say. 
And when you look at the dedication of the temple and even the, the worship within it, God was specific about many things. He was specific about the location. You can even go to John chapter 4 and see that conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. He was specific about the location. He was even specific about things like instruments. He was specific about certain individuals that could sing and even certain songs. He was specific about the sacrifices. Many things that he was very clear about that he wanted. Now, I don't think because... The offerings have been fulfilled through Christ. I don't think that because the, the temple has completely, the, the physical temple has completely been destroyed, and now the church is that spiritual temple, that spiritual household. I don't think that that principle dies with the rest of the Old Testament. Rather, it's the same today, but God has redirected the application. Why is this important? Well, I, I want to make the case really quickly. There used to be sacrifices in the temple, but now, as we already said, Christ has fulfilled that. And as previously stated, we are to be living sacrifices. So things have shifted to a degree, haven't they? We can all agree with that. Now, there is no more physical instruments. Some people have a hard time with that. But I think it's because they've overlooked the importance of what that was supposed to be a shadow of. Why are there no more physical instruments? Because we are the instruments. What does he say in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19? Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16? That you sing and make melody in your heart in worship to God? Don't think that because those mechanical instruments are no longer a part of the worship today that that makes it any less glorious to God. In fact, it's more beautiful because we get to be more involved. We get to be the things that make that beautiful noise, the joyful noise to God. I think that is so encouraging. But it is, for, for some, people don't like to hear that. But I would just say it's no more acceptable to bring back the physical instruments as it would be the physical sacrifices. And we need to come to grips with that. Well, some people need to. But again, coming back to the encouragement, when you think about that, it doesn't matter if you are a congregation that can't sing very well, I think that this congregation doesn't have that problem. We're pretty blessed in that. But what about the congregation that has just 20 people in a very rural area and they really just can't carry a tune? Is that going to bring as much glory to God as maybe, maybe Lakeside would with people that know, know how to sing and sing so beautifully? Well, we don't look at that physical on the physical plane there and think well that just doesn't bring as much glory to God that's not going to be as encouraging rather to God it is more glorious than the worship that was given in Solomon's temple why because they are those instruments and even if they can't carry a tune it's just as beautiful to his ears when they sing scripturally spiritually and acceptably in his sight well I think that this is beautiful for many reasons but I think one of the main reasons it is so beautiful is because when you get to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, God says that even this, the church, is going to end up being the shadow. In Revelation 21 and verse 22, what, is, what does it say? I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, it doesn't mean that the church, being the temple of God, that spiritual household, is any less important. What it means is it's just going to get even better. 
It's going to be even greater when we finally get to that resting place and we are no longer living in the shadow, but with that final dwelling with God in eternity. I would just ask, do you want that? I want that and I want that for you. To have that kind of peace, the comfort of never having to live another day with the pains and the sorrow and the sufferings of this world, the constant agony that tries to attack, but being in the presence of God, singing worship to Him, never having our voices strained, never getting tired, but continually for eternity being able to sing those praises to Him acceptably <laughs> and bringing glory to Him and bringing joy to Him through that. I think that is a beautiful blessing. It's only a blessing for those who are Christians. So are, have you done the things that God says you need to do to be a part of this household, to be one of those, to be as a living stone? We've talked about this several times, but we have water behind us. With, just like with the Ethiopian eunuch, what hinders you from being baptized? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.